My name is Mark. My wife and I lead pastor here at Sozo Church. We are excited and humbled that you all are with us this morning. I've said this before a bunch, but uh, I'll say it again. I love worshiping here at Sozo. I love leading worship here at Sozo. I know as as the typical senior pastor, I probably shouldn't lead worship anymore. I should probably let them take me off the schedule, but I just refuse to let them. I always talk about the fact that that I shouldn't be leading anymore, and I really should be working myself out of it. And then when when we make the schedule, I'm always like, hey, put me down for a week. Like, Yeah, like right there. They're like, why? I'm like, because I want to. I just love worshiping with you guys. I love uh, celebrating Jesus with you. So uh, thank you for letting me lead this morning. Um, If you've got your Bibles, um, you're going to want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to skip the funny transition intro story and just get right into the word. Can we do that this morning? Are we mature enough? Are Are we there as a church that we can just do that? Or do I need to tell a funny story? Um, I would rather read the Bible. I think that's a good thing in your senior pastor, right? I mean, I think maybe a little bit. People are getting depressed. Come on. We love Jesus here. We love the Bible. Amen. I'm going to actually ask us if we can do something. We do this occasionally. I don't like to do it all the time because I don't want it to get routine or religious. But can we stand to our feet for the reading of God's word this morning? Uh, Just to show it the respect and the reverence um, that it is due. Uh, We've been studying Ephesians together now for a few weeks, and I don't know about you, but I've been getting blessed by it, and I I pray and hope that you have too. Um, So we're just going to read this. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And I have to just stop there again. For this reason, for what reason? Because we have been redeemed. We saw this in in the first uh, section of Ephesians. Because we've been redeemed by God for his glory, for his purposes, and because we are now faithful to that redemption, showing evidence in the love for all the saints. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it's a living and active word. We thank you that it's not a passive and dead word. God, we thank you that in in hearing your word, in proclaiming your word, God, you are speaking to us today. Even though this, this letter was written to a church a few thousand years ago, even though it was written to people who have since died, all the children and grandchildren have died, God, we know that it's more than just a letter. We know that it is, it is your word to us. And we ask this day that you would speak to us through your word, that you would breathe life upon your word and speak to us. God, that you would, the way that only you can, reach into our hearts and remove the heart of stone that 
we have from sin and place within us a heart of flesh that longs and desires you, that chases after you, that runs towards you. God, we thank you and we praise you this morning for speaking to us. But God, we also ask that you would make us doers of your word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Am I the only one here in weird reverb this morning on my voice? Maybe a little bit? I don't know. Okay. It's probably just me. I have been known to hear things occasionally. Yeah, that was bad. So this morning we're going to continue uh, our, our uh, little look upon the, this passage here. Last, last time we were together, we talked about the mystery of spiritual transformation. And so we got really creative with the name this week. The mystery of spiritual transformation continued. We're going to continue looking at uh, this passage. We talked about this before. Uh, the first section of, of Ephesians, uh, really verses about one, uh, depending on how you structure Greek and which manuscript you look at, but really verse one all the way uh, through verse 14 is one sentence in the Greek. And then verse 15 through 23, again, is one sentence. Paul here praises God for what he's done uh, for us and what he's doing in us. And then he prays for what God is doing for us and what he's doing in us. And so we saw him praise God for it. And then he, we, we saw him pray for us uh, in the midst of all of this. So what I want us to do here real fast is just review kind of what we saw last week. And really, uh, we need to understand that God's redemption of our lives was the beginning of our spiritual transformation, that we were redeemed by him, that we were redeemed because he said so. We were redeemed because out of his good pleasure and out of his good nature, he decided to reach down and save us. But the problem, if we, we, again, the thing I've been warning us about is, is taking what God has said in his word and then trying to apply human logic to it beyond what his word said. We get into really dangerous theological, finger quotes, theological areas when we do that. Um, we can kind of say, well, since God saved me, since God redeemed me, since it was his power, I can just kind of do whatever I want because he saved me. And what we don't understand is this, that, that the redemption that redeemed you, come on somebody, is now remodeling you. Uh, when when I, I I have friends who live over in England and and I didn't know this but when when one of the the royal family buys a home, which apparently they still do apparently they don't have enough property, um, when they buy a home it goes under renovations because the the queen doesn't want to go and live in that house with your old furniture and if she bought your house she buys everything. I didn't realize this. When, when, when a royal family buys a pro- piece of property, they don't just say, hey, I'm going to give you money for your walls and your floors. They say, here's you know, X amount of pounds for everything in the house. We want it all. Just get out. Just leave. And then a team comes in and takes anything out that she wouldn't like <laughs> and puts in everything that she would. And then a seal is put upon the door that lets everybody know that, you know what? This house belongs to the queen and everything in it she likes. And that's kind of the process that we go through once we're redeemed. We're purchased. He buys all of you. Okay? I don't want us to miss this. He buys all of you. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to buy the stuff I like, but not the stuff I don't. Bible tells us that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid for us. So you're bought just as you are, but how many of you are really happy that God loves you enough not only to accept you the way you are, but not leave you the way you are? Come on, somebody. So, so we see then that true biblical grace doesn't just for, forgive us of sin. Come on, somebody. It frees us from sin. So we are now walking in freedom. So we saw this uh, last week. This was kind of what we saw. The process of spiritual transformation is to engage in God's work of opening our hearts that we might receive wisdom and revelation that will lead to enlightenment, which might sound a little weird and new agey, that word enlightenment, but you know what? It's in the Bible. It was our word first. Come on, somebody. 
So enlightenment really just means to become a light bearer. We'll see that here a little bit more in a second. Uh, we saw last week we are totally 100% dependent on God to change us. Somebody say amen right there, please. Come on, we are, we are completely dependent upon God in our transformation. The best we can hope for, I put it here, the best we can hope for is begrudging submission or behavior modification when we try to do it ourselves. That's the best we can hope for. Is anybody kind of, this whole idea of, of behavior modification to me is, interesting, is an interesting one because it looks like spiritual transformation. It even kind of smells like spiritual transformation, but there's missing elements of it. How many of you, we are in Spokane, have gone downtown and risen, ridden the carousel. If you haven't, it's a buck. You should really go do it. It's awesome. My daughter, Adonaya, she's, she's the master at getting the gold ring. I don't know how she did this. She did not get this ability from me. She, she gets the gold ring all the time. It's amazing. She's awesome. She's anointed. God loves her more than me, apparently. Um, I'm okay with that, by the way. If that's true, which it's not, but if it was, I'd be okay with that. But, but how many of you, you know, we've ridden the carousel. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have ridden an actual living, breathing, pooping horse? A little different, isn't it? <laughs> the, the difference, come on, between riding a real horse and sitting on the beautifully handcrafted wooden horses, a little different. In, in, in the carousel, what do we do? We go around and around in circles, we go up and down. That's begrudging submission and behavior modification. It's just going around and around in circles, come on, um, emotional ups and downs. You, you're, you're traveling, you're just not getting anywhere. Come on, when you ride a horse, there's still those ups and downs, but you're getting somewhere, right? That momentum is propelling you forward. When we engage in what God's doing, it's like riding a horse. When we try to do it ourselves, it's a carousel ride. It might look the same. You might be able to even fool yourself into thinking that you're really doing it, but we all know you're not. Uh, Wisdom and revelation are the ability to know and navigate the terrain of our lives. That means that through the haze and the maze of life's traumas and dramas, we know how to get through it. Amen? I want to stress this to us because... There's kind of this attitude I hear in people that, well, if you're really mature, if you're really spiritually mature, if you're really growing in the Lord, you wouldn't have trauma and drama. And that's just sadly not true. I wish I could tell you, trust in Jesus and all your problems will be solved. You'll never have anything happen to you, trauma, or anything bad happen around you, drama. You'll just have carefree, you'll just dance around like a pixie fairy all the time and life will be great. But unfortunately, I'm bound to what the scriptures tell us. And Jesus said himself, here's a promise from the Lord. In the world, you will have trouble. Like, really? Can't you say in the world, I'll have chocolate? I don't understand. Like, in the world, you'll have trouble. But he says this, but I'll leave you my peace. In other words, I'm going to be working in you that even in the midst of trouble, you'll be able to see clearly, come on, and navigate through life. Amen? So enlightenment then happens. Enlightenment, by the way, is just the process of wisdom and revelation. If wisdom and revelation are at work in your life, enlightenment is the byproduct of that. It means to be a light bearer, to, to contain and to project the light of God. Happens only, enlightenment happens only as we know him better. It says in Ephesians, in the knowledge of him, that you would have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So this is all about getting to know Jesus better. Amen? Enlightenment then should really be the goal of every believer. We should be ever more pressing into God to be better bearers of light. Why? 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light. In carrying light, we become more like God. We bear better the image of Jesus. Amen? Amen. 
So that's really the thrust and the point here this morning of what we're going to be looking into is kind of the, the process by which that enlightenment happens, the process by which this takes place. And what I want us to understand is this, and I'm going to read this because it's, this is kind of a chunky thing I need us to kind of grab a hold of. This is somewhat of a preview of next week, but I want it in your minds as we look at this week because it all ties together. The ultimate goal is that we might experience, catch this please, the actualization of our qualification for service in God's kingdom. I'm going to say that again. The the ultimate goal of, of spiritual transformation, this process that we're engaged in, is that we might experience the actualization. We might experience now the qualification we have in him in eternity. I'm going to read it this way. You are spiritually and eternally qualified. Everybody say amen. You are eternally spiritually qualified because of Christ and what he did on the cross. But spiritual transformation, also called sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. This is a word we don't hear in church a lot anymore, and we need to hear more of it. Sanctification, the process of sanctification, or the process of spiritual transformation, is the process by which that which is yours eternally is deposited in you practically. What do I mean by that? I mean this. In, in Christ... The Father sees you as holy, perfect, redeemed, sanctified, and pure before him. That's awesome. 100% because of what Jesus did for you. But when the Spirit looks at you here in, on earth, does he see that? Do you experience perfection right now? Or do you think, now some of you are like, yeah, I do. I am, you are Barney, you are legendary. But the truth is that God sees you, come on somebody, and he does not see perfection. So what the Holy Spirit is doing now in this process of sanctification is taking the image of you seen in heaven, and he says, I'm going to work you into that image to the best of my abilities and to the best of your capabilities on this side of eternity. That's the process that we're talking about. But the goal of that is not so that you can have a happy, wealthy, healthy life, but rather so that you can be qualified now, actualize your qualification for service in God's kingdom. There's byproducts of benefit for us, but the ultimate goal, we need to keep this in mind, we need to keep our our eyes set upon this, is that we might more more fully be qualified to serve God in what he's doing on the earth today. Okay? We following on this? We jiving on this? So Paul's going to share with us three things. He shares with us three things in the middle of this this prayer that are going to help us engage in the process of, of spiritual transformation more fully and more completely. This word know, he says that you might know what is the hope of your calling, that you might know all of these three things, that you might know these things. That word know, it's kind of interesting, literally means to possess information and know how to process it. So what does that mean? He's saying that you might possess enlightenment in these three things. So really by engaging these three things and, and applying them to our lives, we are going to grow in our enlightenment. How many people are excited about that? How many people want to get, dig into these things real fast this morning? Amen? Anybody with me? Okay, cool. Um, important to note before we jump right in, though, is this. Paul, when he wrote this letter to the Ephesian church, again, we can kind of get the mindset that everybody that Paul wrote to had no problems, that their lives were great, that everything was wonderful, and that, that they experienced no difficulty, no trouble. But the reality is, and it's vitally important for us to realize this when we read this, this prayer, is that there was great hardship happening inside the church of Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter. Now, there's two kinds of trials going on, two kinds of hardships, actually. There was the hardships of success. The church was exploding. The gospel was being extremely effective in the hearts and lives of people. But because of that, great persecution and trouble was happening at the same time. 
And so Paul here, it's interesting to me because we see that people are actually losing their businesses. If we read in Acts, uh, the, the story of the planting of, uh, of the church in Ephesus, we see people lose their businesses. We see people lose friendships. We see people lose uh, all sorts of things. We see riots break out because of the gospel. And you would assume that Paul here would say, okay, I'm going to pray for you. And you can kind of even imagine the, uh, the, the Ephesian church getting all excited about, about okay, Paul's going to pray for us. I bet he's going to pray that we would, our businesses would thrive. That we would have, come on somebody, our best life now. That we, would, that we would somehow be able to experience greatness. But no, what he prays is that you would be able to see three things. That really, what he's saying is that you would be able to see the reality of what's really going on in the midst of this hardship and difficulty. So we're going to jump into here. We're going to be looking at these, again, just, just to preface, because some of y'all are, are, uh, are kind of familiar with this passage. What I, my goal this, this morning is to give us much more of a telescopic view of these three things than a microscopic view. And I'm doing that for two reasons. One, because I want us to see the string that kind of ties these three things together, kind of the running form as God is, is moving us from one to the other. But the other reason is this. I'd really encourage you to take some time this week and to dig in for yourself into these three areas. I'm going to encourage you and challenge you actually in this. Take... Take Monday and Tuesday and look at the first one. Take Tuesday and Wednesday, or Wednesday and Thursday, rather, and look at the next one. Take Friday and Saturday and look at the next one. And really kind of dig into this a little bit and dig out some stuff for yourself in understanding these. Because again, we talked about this last week. You have to have wisdom and revelation for yourself. I can't give it to you. Your grandma can't give it to you. Your auntie can't give it to you. Your mom can't do it for you. Your husband, your wife can't do it for you. You have to engage in Christ for yourself or there is little to no benefit for you. Okay, we jive in. So the first thing we see here is that he says that we would know, we would possess the information and process it correctly, that we would know what is the hope to which he has called you. So when you hit, when you hit hardship, here's what I want to try to give you. Three things to look for. Okay, three things to look for when you hit hardship. Here's what Paul says he hopes we know. Here's what Paul says he hopes we see. Here's what Paul says he hopes we can process. First, that we would know what we're called to. So the first question we need to ask when we hit hardship is to what has God called me? Okay, so when you have, when you have a trauma happen to you, when you have drama happening around you, am I the only one that experiences these things? First thing you got to do is go, okay, what's God, to what has God called me? Because you don't end a sentence in a preposition. To what has God called me? Two of you are like, yeah. The rest of you are like, I don't get it. To what has God called you? Okay, I'm going to answer the question real fast, real easy. Hope. God has called you to hope. Come on, somebody. Hope means to eagerly await for something. We ought to be people who are eagerly awaiting. But then the question has to come out after that. Okay, but what, what should I hope for? Or maybe a better question. What should I hope in? Where should my hope rest? Am I just supposed to hope generally, vaguely? Am I just supposed to be kind of like a bury my head in the sand and pretend like everything's awesome? No, the Bible tells us we ought to hope and here's what it tells us we ought to hope in, is that in the grace of God, through the shed blood of Christ, that I have been drawn near in relationship and fellowship to God. That ought to be our hope. You know, honestly, we as believers should be the most hope-filled people on the planet. There shouldn't be anybody on the planet with more hope than somebody who's been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus. Sadly, if we're going to be honest, not always the case. Quite evident when we look at Facebook. We, we ought to be people, come on, who are, who are eagerly anticipating 
not only our relationship that we have now, but can I kind of push us a little bit? We should be eagerly anticipating the relationship we'll have in eternity as well. That in him, come on, in him, we, we are accepted now and eternally. Can I tell you a, a secret? Since this is a series called Mystery, I've read the end of the book. Jesus wins. Yeah, he beats everything. He, like, all of it. He wins. So we should have great hope in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our drama, in the midst of our trauma. We should have great hope that, you know what? We were drafted onto his team, and his team wins. All the time, always, every time, in the end, he wins. Now, I'm just a stickler for the Bible. I didn't say you win. (laughs) Some of you are like, yeah, amen, preacher, okay, I, I win. I didn't say you win. Jesus wins, because ultimately, Jesus is for Jesus, Let me catch, I'm just, I have to drill this a little bit. Jesus is not on your team. This is taught in in, in subtle ways throughout Christendom all over the earth, but especially in America, that that, that when you you are saved, that Jesus joins your team. Anybody ever got that impression before? Yeah, it's not in the Bible. You're now on Jesus's team, (laughs) okay? He always wins. I didn't say we always win. He always wins, and that's something we should rejoice in. That's something we should celebrate in. That's something we should have great hope in. Our hope ultimately is in Jesus. What ought you hope ought to hope in? Jesus. Can we just say this again? We're going to say this a lot in the series. I have a feeling it's all about Jesus. Who's it all about? Who's it all about? Okay, Jesus. It is all about Jesus. You hit trauma and drama in your life. What's the first thing you should remember? I ought to be hope filled because it's all about Jesus. My hope lies in Jesus. Come on, somebody. That's a good place to say Amen. In the end, Jesus wins. Come on, our hope, I like this, I wrote this down. Our hope is that we were in him, that we are in him, and that we will be in him forever. That means that on the cross, you were in him. That means in your daily life, you are in him. That means in eternity, you'll be in him. That's where our hope lies. That's where we should be hopeful. That's why we can be hope-filled. That's why hope really should, should look at a situation, not ignore it, not pretend like it's not the way it is, but hope says, I see not only how it is, but how it could or maybe how it should be. And I believe that God is working all things, both for my good and ultimately for his. And that's how I see things. That's why I'm hope-filled. That's why I have hope in this situation. We have hope because we have Jesus. If you want to write something down, write that down. Stick it on your forehead. Put it on your mirror. You have hope because you have Jesus. Amen? Next thing he tells us is this. He says that we should know the hope to which we were called. Next he says that we should know the glorious inheritance in the saints. That we should know our glorious inheritance in the saints. Inheritance, interesting that he would say inheritance. He doesn't say promises, he says inheritance. Why does he say inheritance instead of promises? Because he's trying to get you to understand something here. Paul doesn't take any time to unpack any of this in this giant run-on sentence that he prays for us. But what he's trying to get you to understand is this. Only sons get an inheritance. Which means that by telling you that you have an inheritance, what does that mean? You're a son. So when you hit trauma and drama, when life presses against you, when hardship happens, you should stop and you should be, I'm going to be hope-filled. I'm called to hope in this situation. 
Because I have Jesus. And because I have Jesus, come on somebody, I have my position as a son of God. Now we've talked about this before, but I'll just reiterate it. Some of you girls are like, I'm a daughter of God. Again, I'm just a stickler for the Bible. According to the scriptures, we are all sons of God because we all have an inheritance and only sons get an inheritance. So ladies, I hate to tell you this, or maybe I shouldn't hate to tell you, but it's a little uncomfortable for me. You are a son of God. Now, if you feel like that's not fair and that maybe God's a chauvinistic kind of God, I'll let you know this. The Bible also tells us that as the church, we're all the bride of Christ. I'm going to tell you something here, ladies. It's much easier for you to be a son than it is for me to be a bride, all right? So if you feel like that's not fair, take it up with the Bible. But the fact of the matter is, is that in him, we are all sons, and in him, we are the bride of Christ. So you are a son. By saying that you get an inheritance means that you're a son, that it, as a son... He has made great and precious promises to you. It lies in the fact that you're a son, though. I want us to see this, so I pulled this verse. This is uh, 2 Peter 1, 3-4. It says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is good verses to remember when we're going through hard times. That he's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Again, we're on the same path, right? That we were on before in the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Wish I could preach on that, but don't have time. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Okay, Because you're a son, because you're redeemed, because you have an inheritance, that inheritance is the great and precious promises that God has given to us of his own. They're his promises. We get to partake of them because we're sons so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Are you catching that? So again, we need to see here that we have promises that we are transformed through the knowledge of him because we are made like him through the promises that he's given us. These promises take on both, um, both commands and blessings, and we should receive both with joy. Some of the promises that God has, has given us are promises that we will be different, that we will behave, that we will act, that we will be transformed internally differently than we used to be. We put it this way last week, that we'll be upgraded in the internal parts of ourselves to desire things we never desired before and to despise things we never despised before. If that process has not happened, if you can't right now think of, of the last time that a shift happened in you, I'm just going to be just get real down in your dirt here. If you can't remember right now the last time that God changed your perspective on something, I would encourage you to press into him harder than you ever have. Because we should have constant reminders of, you know what, I used to like that, and now I think it's gross. I used to desire this, and now I despise it. That's what, that's what transformation looks like. That's, it's making us more like the son that we really are. Amen? That's that process of spiritual transformation. So really, we, we've, got to get, we've got to get to this, though. You have become a son of God. The promises are there because you're a son. Can I, just, can I just pastor us here for a minute? Please don't let your trials, please don't let your failures become your identity. As we're engaging in, in the, the, the pressure and the pressing and the hardship of life, don't let those hard things become your identity. Your identity does not lie in your past failures. Your identity lies in the fact that you are a son of God. That's your identity. Your future does not lie in the fact that in the past you failed. Your future lies in the fact that because Jesus decided that he could be glorified in redeeming you, you were redeemed and now you are a son of God. That's good news, somebody. Come on. That's real good news. 
That's very good news. I'm excited about that personally. Your sonship brings with it promises. Come on, somebody. And that's a good thing. The greatest inheritance, the greatest thing that we've been given. Anybody know where I'm going with this? Jesus. <laughs> Come on. If you want to know, what, what, again, we're, we're looking telescopically here. I'm going to challenge you. Dig into the word. Look at the things that God's promised you. Dig into, look at the commands and the blessings that are yours as sons. But come on, we've got to see that, that those, those commands, those blessings are there, but the greatest thing that we've been given, the biggest thing, the biggest deal, the most glorious, the most profound, the most significant thing you've been given is Jesus himself. Do you ever stop and think about this? Anybody ever gone to a wedding before? Somebody else's wedding, right? You go to a wedding. What do you bring to the wedding? You bring a gift. I bring a present. You know, the only two people that don't have to bring a present to a wedding are the bride and groom. Why? Because they're giving themselves to one another. When I married my wife, I didn't buy her anything. I bought her, her ring. We kind of both bought it because we were broke. But, um, but when, we, when we got married at that ceremony, I wasn't giving her a present of something else. I gave her myself in that moment. She gave me herself. That's what, that's what I want us to see, that, that though there are gifts that come from our union with Christ, come on, somebody, the greatest inheritance you have is Jesus. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. The greatest inheritance we've been given is Jesus. Far greater than any earthly possession or heavenly blessing is the abiding assurance of the constant presence of Jesus with us. That means that when I say the greatest inheritance you've been given is Jesus, I don't just mean the greatest inheritance you've been given is Jesus later. I mean now. You can know, going through the difficulty you go through, that Jesus is with you. That he's right there alongside of you, walking with you. This is an anchor to our soul, knowing that he's with us. If you want to dig into that, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 to 20. I'm not going to read it so we can actually get down on time this morning. Because I'm long-winded anyways. Uh, the third thing that Jesus says, or that Paul tells us here that we need to know. So he says that we should know the hope to which we were called. We should know the glories of the inheritance in the saints. Thirdly, he says the greatness of his power toward us. This is really where I want to kind of focus this morning. So we saw that we should ask, what am I called? To what am I called? We saw what has God given me and who has he made me is the next thing that we ought to ask ourselves and look for in the midst of the trauma and the drama. Third thing we ought to ask is what is God desiring to do in and through me? So, okay, I'm in, this, I'm in this difficulty, I'm in this hardship, I'm in this hard time. What do I need to be thinking about? I need to be thinking about what am I called to? What has God given me and who has he called me to be? Come on, somebody. And then lastly, we need to stop and go, what is God desiring to do in and through me? The word toward, he says that we should know the, the greatness of his power toward us. This word toward is awesome. The word toward here in the Greek means into, onto, to, toward, for, and among. That means this, God is at work in you to form and fashion you into his image. That's good news. Come on, that means that God is at work to you that you might have your true needs met. That's, a good, that's good news. What, what did we just read in, 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 uh, in, from Peter? He said that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So when God's working toward us, when his power is toward us, it means that he is, he is to us. He's working to get us all the things that we have uh, need of. It means that he's watching over you and his face is turned toward you. 
Come on, we, we ought not to get depressed when we go through hard times thinking God's abandoned us. The Bible tells us that he's still looking at us. He's still watching over us. He's still mindful of the difficulty you're going through. It means that he's for you to work things out to which you are unaware. I'm really looking forward to the day where God's able to sit me down and go, hey, you, you know those difficult things that you went through? Let me show you all the stuff I worked out that you never had to go through. Here's stuff that you didn't even know was going to happen, and I worked it out. I shared this uh, with Sonny the other day, I actually have a friend who was downtown Spokane. This was about, oh goodness, probably four or five years ago. Was downtown Spokane with his, uh, I can't remember if they were boyfriend or girlfriend at the time. They're now married, but they were downtown and, and they saw somebody just sitting on the, 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 the corner of the street downtown, uh, down by where the Apple store now is, kind of where B. Dalton booksellers used to be. It's now a T-Mobile, I think. <laughs> um, that's depressing. Um, and they saw this girl. And they just felt led to her. They just, he felt like he had a word from God for her. And to be honest with you, I don't remember what it was, but he went up and shared it with her. She started to cry. He led her to the Lord. They know she had track marks up and down both of her arms. She had a collapsed vein in her neck. And they began to pray for her and share the love of Christ with her and said, can we pray for you? And now that, you're, you know, now that you've accepted Christ, now that you've been redeemed, that you've been converted, let me, let me you know, show you that there's more than just heavenly stuff that, that God wants to move in your life now. And and she became completely healed of these things. The track marks literally went away. The vein popped up in her neck and she began to be, be able to think clearly. They could tell that she was on something before and her mind began to get clear. And, and she said, we, we've got to get off the street. And they said, well, why? What's going on? And she said, you know that van that's been driving by over and over again? I'm actually with those guys. I was supposed to go into that bank and we were going to rob the bank. That Chase Bank that's downtown, yeah, we're going to go in there. We're going to rob it. And if we don't, if I don't go in there, these guys are going to grab me. and We're going to go. So they pulled her inside a little uh, restaurant there, fed her, and found a little safe house for her to get into and to to be there and to get her life straight. Sent her off with some people that were able to disciple her. That's the kind of stuff. I wonder how many of those people working in that bank they have no idea what God just worked out. Come on, somebody. That means God is working just like that for you. He's working these things out. And so we need to be mindful of, we, we see the trauma we go through, but come on, you don't see the trauma that you don't have to go through because God worked it out for you beforehand. Amen? Amen. So we see this then, that, that God is working these things out in us. In the sa- it's the same power that God used in his son Jesus to work out his purposes that he's now working in us. I'm going to say that again. It's the same power that God worked in and through his son Jesus that he's now working in and through us to accomplish his purposes. Again, I said this before, the ultimate goal of spiritual transformation is what? That you might realize now, this side of eternity, what's been given to you on that side of eternity, that you might be equipped and qualified to be used by God, come on, in his purposes on the earth. I'm going to end with, with, with a few verses here because your role may be big or it may be small in God's purposes, but it's a role nonetheless. And it's a role that he has, he has chosen you to play. So he's going to use everything that he can, come on somebody, to make you into the qualification that you need to be to be used by him on the earth. That's good news. It's tough. It's hard. And here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to pinpoint one thing this morning, one thing that God uses more than any other thing to shape us, to form us, to fashion us into his image. And I hate to tell you this, but ultimately I want you to find joy in it. It's suffering. That difficulty and trial come into our life, that suffering happens to us, that we might be transformed more into the image of Christ. That difficulty and suffering are going to take place in your life. The question should not be, am I going to suffer? 
The question shouldn't even be, how am I going to suffer? The question is, how are you going to respond in the midst of that suffering? What's your response going to be? When suffering happens, what's your response? When difficulty happens, what's your attitude? And here's what I want us to see. We ought to suffer just like Jesus did. We ought to look at suffering just like Jesus looked at it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you go through difficult times, you should realize you're a son. Realizing that you're a son, you're going to suffer just like Jesus, the ultimate son, suffered. To say that we don't suffer because Jesus suffered is a misappropriation, a gross misappropriation of the work of the cross. Well, Jesus suffered on the cross, so I didn't think I had to suffer anymore. You no longer suffer as a sinner, but you now suffer as a son. Distinct difference but you still suffer. But this is how we ought to think about our suffering. This is how we ought to position ourselves in suffering. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, what? Joy set before him. When you go through suffering, it says that Jesus despised the shame of the cross. He despised the shame that he went through. He despised the suffering that he went through. There's this morbid idea inside of Christianity, though. well, you should like to suffer because Jesus did it. No, Jesus hated suffering. He despised it. This tells us despised suffering, but he kept his eye not on his happiness, come on somebody, but on his joy. Happiness is so fleeting. Happiness is so momentary. Come on, you had a great day the other day. You were, you were having an awesome day. Things were going great. Things were going awesome. You were happy as a clam. And then for some weird reason, you decided instead of going over to Maple or Monroe, you decided you'd jump onto Division. Remember this? And you were riding on Division, and then that dude in the Acura cut you off, and your happiness was gone. Such as me. Come on, happiness is here today and gone today. But joy resides in a deeper, more profound place. And so what he's saying here is this. Find your joy. Keep your eyes on your joy. Can anybody guess what our joy is? Jesus. Come on, somebody. Why are we joy-filled? Why are we sons? Why do we have an inheritance? Why do we thus have joy, even in the midst of suffering? Because we have Jesus. Because it is all about Jesus. Amen? So here's where we close. When you face trouble, look for three things. When you face hardship, when you go through trouble, again, the, 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 the question is not, are you going to suffer? It's how are you going to respond when you go through suffering? Some of y'all are looking at me like I'm a jerk. I don't like preaching this stuff. It's just in the Bible, okay? I wish I could tell you, honestly, let me be real with you, just level with you here for a second. If I had it my way, if I was God, which would be scary, but if I was God, I would have said, you know what, spiritual transformation is going to happen the more you eat caramel and drink coffee. The more caramel you eat and the more coffee you drink, the more you become like Jesus. That's how I would have set it up. But I'm not as smart as God. Praise Jesus. And he knows the better way for us to be transformed. Amen? So what he's saying is, as you go through these hard times, look for the real thing that God is doing. So he says three questions. We've already heard him, but we're going to hear him again. He says, ask these questions. To what has God called me? Answer, we are called to hope because we have Jesus. Amen? Next. What has God given me and who has God made me? Next time you're in a, next time you're in a difficulty, next time you're in a trial, next time you're suffering, what, to what has God called me? What has God given me and who has God made me? The greatest gift we've been given is Jesus. 
who makes us sons of God. Last but certainly not least, what is God desiring to do in me and through me? God desires to make you like Jesus so he can use you like Jesus. Amen? I want to just plug this and then we're going to go back into worship and engage and respond to what we've heard. When you go through trials, if I've learned one thing about trials, and we've, my wife and I have experienced our fair share and probably a few more of difficulty and trial and hardship, please do not scream at God and ask why or get angry with him. Why am I telling you that? You're allowed to. You can. God's not going to abandon you because you scream and yell and holler at him. When you hit a trial, when you hit a hardship, when you, when you hit a difficulty, when, when life swings a, a, a car at you from out of your vision and slams into you and everything in your life seems to get derailed, when the promises you thought were yours and you thought you deserved don't happen, when the things that you so long for don't take place and you're angry and you're frustrated, please hear me. Don't scream at God, get angry and ask why. It doesn't produce anything in your life. I can think of, of, of the day when Adonai was born and she found out that she had a stroke and she began to have seizures. I remember getting so angry at God and screaming and yelling and asking why. And we prayed and we, 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 we love you, Lord. We serve you. And we, we, we've done all of this and we've, we've set our face to seek you. Ty didn't take anything that she shouldn't have while she was pregnant. We didn't, we, I mean, we were so crazy and whacked out and so weird that we didn't even listen to secular music in the car when Ty was in the car because the baby would hear it. It's just weird. Let's do it a ton when she's born, but before she's born, let's not do that. And that happened, and, and that was my response, honestly. Why? Why, God? Why did you do this? Why did this happen? Why did you allow this? Why in your sovereignty, why in your power is this taking place? I don't understand it. I got angry, and you know what? It produced nothing in my life of any value. But when I stopped and I said, okay, God, what am I called to? Or rather yet, to what am I called what have you given me? Who have you called me to be? What are you desiring to do in me and through me in this situation? Can I tell you that third one is probably the greatest thing you can ask. Okay, God, I was just diagnosed with this. Okay, God, this is going on in me. This, okay, God, this, this is happening to me. This just happened to my friend. This, is, this drama is going on around me. Okay, God, what is it you're desiring to do in me and what is it you're desiring to do through me? That if I wasn't in this situation, I'd never be able to do. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to go back into worship here and now we're going to do the awkward transition thing where I have to now go up and play guitar. So I'm just going to talk about how awkward it's going to be because maybe it'll be less awkward then, but probably not. I want us to engage in this. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you're suffering or struggling through something, but I want us to take some time and, and to give ourselves the opportunity to ask those questions of ourselves, to, to really press into God for those things. Because here's the truth. All of those things, this is the thread I was hoping and I think you were picking up on. It's all about Jesus. What are we looking for? Really, the truth. What are you looking for when you go through hard time? Look for Jesus. Look for the hope that he gives you. Look for the promises that he's made you. Look for what he's trying to do in you. Look to Jesus. Holy Spirit, we thank you this morning. We thank you that you have a purpose in trials, that you have a purpose in suffering, that you have a purpose in the difficulties and the hardships that we go through. That God, that you have chosen those things 
to make us more like Jesus. And that God, that we can trust and rely and rest in knowing that even when we go through difficulty, that even when we go through hardship, that God, you are at work and that Jesus, it truly is all about you. That Jesus, it's about what you've done in us. It's about what you're longing to do through us. It's about what you've given to us and called us to. So we set our affections towards you, God. 